Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On today's show, billions and billions of years from now, our star will transform into a white dwarf. And now we know what that will mean. It's like we're looking into a crystal ball about what will happen to our solar system when our star dies. Do those planets survive? And what scientists have learned from the titanic job of decoding the DNA of the planet's largest animal. I thought the job of, of cleaning two blue whales in Newfoundland, as you said, we were knee-deep in whale, uh, I thought that was the big job. But the actual biggest job was assembling the genome, which took us about four years. Plus, how permafrost shapes rivers in the Arctic, how sea otters shape the coastline of California, and scientists answer a chicken and egg question. I mean, scientists answer the chicken and egg question. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. In 2014, nine blue whales died in heavy ice in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Two of the carcasses of the enormous animals washed up on shore in Newfoundland. That's when a team from the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto got busy with the laborious and sometimes disgusting job of cleaning their flesh from their bones. Knee-deep in whale guts, crews battled the body of the world's biggest animal. Yeah, it is getting tiring because the, the, the blubber strips are quite heavy and the, and the, the tendons are very uh, fibrous and, and, and thick, so it, it really takes the edge off the knife really quick. <laughs> Ultimately, one whale's clean skeleton was brought to the museum where it's now displayed. But the skeleton was only part of the scientific harvest from that effort. Another was the samples of flesh cryogenically frozen from the whales, which have now been used to completely decode the genome of one of the two animals. And that, in turn, has allowed scientists to do a new comparative study of the genetics of the blue whales of the North Atlantic. This has revealed some valuable information for understanding the recovery of these endangered behemoths and a few surprises as well. Dr. Mark Engstrom is Curator Emeritus at the Royal Ontario Museum and was part of the team. Dr. Angstrom, welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much, Bob. Well, first of all, tell me a little bit about the North Atlantic blue whale. What were you trying to understand about them with this study? Well, we again, as you noted, we recovered two whales in 2014, and we began working on the genetics of populations of blue whales in the North Atlantic uh, to better understand their conservation status and hopefully contribute to their recovery. Now, you talk about the uh, North Atlantic. Uh, I mean, blue whales go all over the world, do they not? Or are there distinct populations? That's correct. The blue whales are, are worldwide. There are several subspecies that are recognized. Uh, and the North Atlantic population is, tends to be relatively distinct from other blue whales. It's the same species, though. Now, I remember when you collected those whales, <laughs> it, it was big news and there was lots of film with you sort of knee deep in whale guts <laughs> talking about how it smelled like a dead whale. <laughs> what, what parts of it in the end did you recover for the genome study? 
Well, that's interesting. We took several different uh, tissue samples for the genome study. Uh, it turned out the best sample that we got uh, was from one of the fins that had been sitting in cold water the whole, the whole time uh, and hadn't deteriorated. So how big a job was it to sequence and assemble the genome of the world's largest animal? Well, I thought the job of of cleaning two blue whales in Newfoundland uh, it took us a week le- each, and as you said, we were knee deep in uh, uh, in in whale uh, that entire time. Uh, I thought that was the big job, but the actual biggest job was assembling the genome, which took us about four years. Wow, why was it so difficult? Well, you start from we started the genome. We did a, what's called a de novo genome. So we did it from you start from scratch. Uh, so we began sequencing the genome in small pieces, and then you have to put all those small pieces together to obtain the original sequence. And it's a huge job. It's like it's like having millions of pieces of a puzzle, none of which have any images on them, and there's no picture on the box, and you've got to put it all back together. <laughs> okay, so once you got the genome of this one whale. What was your next step to understand the whole population of blue whales in the North Atlantic? Uh, well, we had we had we took samples from our the two two whales that we had salvaged, uh, and then we got samples from some other whales that had died subsequently. And we went by and we obtained samples from a number of our colleagues in Europe to get a picture of the whole North Atlantic, both the east and the west. Our ours side being the west, uh, and then we also got samples from histor- from historic whales uh, that had been collected many many years ago. Ago, we went to museums around North America uh, and collected bone samples to extract DNA from those. So we got whale, we got whale samples from whales from over a hundred years and from both sides of the Atlantic to be able to examine the dynamics of population changes in in blue whales in the last hundred years. So when you put it all together, what did you find? Well, we found some interesting things. So there had been a, a debate about whether the populations on either side of the Atlantic were distinct. That is, were the, was there any gene flow or gene exchange between these two populations on the European side and on the Western side? Uh, and different studies had suggested different answers to that question. Uh, our data suggested they were both right. Uh, so there is some gene exchange, presumably by movement of individuals, going from West to East, as it turns out. So well, that's actually that's actually very good news, I thought. So how then was the diversity of these whales? Well, it was very interesting. So there was uh, so when you look at genetic diversity of the genome itself, we had been concerned that it might be very low, given that populations had uh, decreased in size so dramatically due to due to whaling from about 1900 to about 1960, uh, and the population had been just decimated. But the blue whales were surprisingly genetically diverse. They're in looking like they're in good shape. Well, how's that possible if their population got down so small? Isn't that called a, a bottleneck? Yes, that's called a bottleneck. Uh, but the but generation time of whales is very long, uh, 20 to 30 years for a generation time, even longer than people. Uh, and so that effect will take a long time to actually be seen. Uh, so it could be that we'd, we're not going to see the effect for another 50 to 100 years. Oh, I see. There just hasn't been enough time for any serious inbreeding among the whales. That's correct. And okay. and for you have to have repeated generations of inbreeding to generate this bottleneck effect, and we probably haven't had enough generations. So were there any other big surprises hiding in the whale genes? Yes. Uh, as it turns out, there's quite a bit of fin whale DNA in the North Atlantic blue whales. So there is approximately, on average, there was about 3 to 3.5% 3. 
of the blue whale genome is actually derived from fin whales. So there's been some substantial hybridization going on between these two species. Holy, fin whales, that's another species. It's quite a different species. Matter of fact, fin whales are not even the, the nearest relatives of blue whales. So, uh, yes, we were quite surprised. But we, there have been previous reports, historic reports, of hybridization between these species. Uh, but it's been usually thought to be quite sporadic and, and very occasional. Uh, but it looks to me like it's, it's, uh, it's relatively substantial in that there's about as much DNA from a fin whales in the blue whale population as there are of, of Neanderthal gene, of genes in the human population. So do you think that this interbreeding between the blues and the fins is a result of their population decline? Or has this always been going on? So we don't have sample sizes that are large enough to tell if the rate of hybridization has gone up or if it's remain or if it's been the same or you know that this has occurred you know throughout their history. So we don't really know and it would that would be something in the future we'd like to be able to look at mm-hmm. is to continue sampling them to see if this if this rate goes up. So you found that the blue whales themselves are genetically diverse uh, across the Atlantic, but they're interbreeding with fin whales. Uh, what's what's that say about the future of diversity? Well, uh, we we think that the future. Well, we're hoping that the that the fact that there's gene flow between these two populations of blue whales in the Atlantic, uh, and that there are that they have maintained at, to this point their genetic diversity within individuals, we hope we. I have hopes that this is a harbinger of, of um, at least the potential to be able to conserve the species and uh, to have it survive in, intact. Uh, the hybridization with fin whales is something is an interesting phenomenon, uh, and we don't know what the consequences of it might be. Uh, we you could be concerned about the swamping of the blue whale genome by fins in the North Atlantic, but at current time the evidence doesn't suggest that that's happening. So is this a good news story? I think in general it is a good news story. We have to we the population at the moment appears healthy even though there are very few individuals in the western Atlantic. There is some gene flow between the east and the west that is throughout the, the northern Atlantic and in total the blue whale population in the northern Atlantic is, you know, uh, 3000 individuals plus as opposed to the two to 400 individuals that are on the western side. So I think in general uh this this story leaves me quite hopeful about the potential for conservation of the species in the future. Dr. Engstrom, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Bob. Dr. Mark Engstrom is Curator Emeritus at the Royal Ontario Museum. We've spoken at length on this program about how thawing permafrost is changing the landscape in the Arctic undermining communities, releasing long-buried pollution, and destroying valuable archaeological sites. Well, now we've got another one to add to the list. After taking an uphill hike while on a research trip, geoscientist Joan Marie Delvecchio noticed something strange about the Arctic vista in front of her, notably that there are far fewer rivers in the frigid north than in other parts of the world. So she decided to figure out why. In her new study, she found out that the permafrost is responsible for sculpting and containing the rivers in the Arctic, and that has big implications for how much carbon is released if and when the permafrost melts. Dr. Del Vecchio led this work as a postdoctoral fellow at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Hello, and welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Now, for those who haven't been to the north, to the far north, what's permafrost soil like? (laughs) 
<laughs> Great question. So permafrost soil is, it's soil that's frozen for more than two years at a time. And what's interesting is that you can have frozen soil, you can have frozen rock. All of that is permafrost. Over the course of a summer, the permafrost begins to thaw and you might have 10, 20, 30 centimeters up to a meter or so of what's called the active layer. And it becomes active because suddenly plants can grow, water can flow, all, all sorts of biology can turn on uh, during the summer when that active layer thaws. Uh, now, why was it strange that you didn't see many rivers when you took your hike? Yeah, we uh, we got to the top of the watershed in my in my field site in western Alaska, and I looked out and said, "Yeah, where where are all the rivers? Why why does <laughs> why is this landscape so vast, so smooth, not not carved up by channels?" And it was interesting because we knew, you know, there's there's water on the surface and it's flowing through that permafrost soil, through that active layer, but it wasn't sort of coalescing into channels and. I saw that there were indeed flow paths, these bright green stripes on the landscape. They're known as water tracks. They sort of move all sorts of water and nutrients across the tundra. But they weren't carving valleys. They weren't creating some of the bowl shapes, the deep carved valleys that I was used to seeing in temperate landscapes. Oh, I see. So the water was just kind of flowing over the surface rather than eroding into it. Exactly. Now, why would that matter? Yeah. So what's really fascinating about studying when water starts to carve into a landscape is that the processes that operate all over Earth's surface are in a constant tug of war, a push and pull between the forces that smooth the landscape or fill holes and the processes that carve them up and, and carve the holes in river valleys. And so rivers and hill slopes are battling it out to shape the landscape. What that means, though, is that the soil is also moving in that process. And if you're efficiently sort of filling in holes and spreading soil, you're also efficiently burying carbon. And so the same processes that smooth the landscape, we also think of as being good at sequestering and burying carbon. And of course, the opposite, the processes that carve up a landscape, well, those dig holes and expose some of that carbon that might be in the soil to the air so that it might be respired as a greenhouse gas. Well, take me through your study. How did you look at how permafrost and rivers interact with each other in the Arctic? It started, honestly, with a simple question. I just wanted to know if there were more or less rivers in the Arctic compared to the temperate landscapes that most scientific study have, have focused on in the past. So what I did was I used some data from the Arctic. Um, some of this was relatively new data. We haven't had topographic data in the Arctic at the resolution at the fine scale that we have now. And what I did was I compared how many streams there were in the Arctic and I compared watersheds that, you know, had the same sort of slope and precipitation and other factors. And I, I compared how many streams were in those watersheds compared to sort of their, their counterparts down in the lower latitudes. What I found was that no matter how you sliced it, uh, no matter what the background topography was or background climate, there were always fewer streams in permafrost landscapes than there were in temperate landscapes. Were you surprised by that? I was surprised at how widespread and strong the trend was. I you know, looked across the board. I looked at 
low slopes. I looked at high slopes. I looked at dry landscapes. I looked at wet landscapes. No matter what, for the most part, you were always getting more streams and temperate landscapes. It was it was really a, a signal that happened independent of any other things shaping these landscapes. But on the other hand, the ground is frozen. I mean, it's going to be harder for water to cut through frozen ground. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And I think you know, it, it intuitively kind of makes sense, but it was really important to show it both systematically that we can see this trend across the Arctic, and we can also put some numbers on it, right? We can we can talk about how, oh, you know, there's this much percent land covered by channels down in the south as compared to up in the north. Okay, so there are fewer rivers in the north today, but we hear a lot about how the north is warming up faster than the rest of the planet. So what does that mean for the landscape in the Arctic as the permafrost melts? Yeah, we addressed that in our study a little bit. And what we found, there was a pretty clear relationship between the mean annual temperature and the number of streams. As you were looking at warmer and warmer watersheds, they had more and more streams. We can kind of hypothesize that for a given frozen watershed, when that starts to warm, well, it makes a lot of sense that we'll start to grow the channels much like they're warmer, you know, friends in in warmer parts of the Arctic have more channels than the colder watersheds today. So what does that mean for the release of carbon? (laughs) Well, what we calculated was that we have basically the equivalent of 35 million cars driving on the road every year in the equivalent of carbon that might be stored in the proportion of the landscape that is exposed to erosion for every degree of warming. So what that means... 35 million cars? (laughs) Holy smokes. Yeah, what that means is that 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 carbon that might get released from those parts of the landscape that are eroding, those are going to turn potentially into greenhouse gases that will further lead to the warming of, you know, the Arctic and and elsewhere in the world. So there's there's truly sort of a runaway effect that might take place if we start to see rivers exposing and eroding soil carbon stocks. So is this carving of the landscape by rivers and releasing carbon another feedback loop where the worse the problem gets, the, the worse it gets? As the warmer the, the air gets, the, the greater the, the effect? That's exactly right. The fact that a warming trend might change a surface process that releases greenhouse gases is one of the many ways in which warming at the poles, warming in the Arctic, is a double whammy problem, right? In addition to the immediate effects that you have of a changing landscape, changing ecosystem, you're also going to see the release of greenhouse gases further lead to warming that will further lead to change. And the process goes on and on. Dr. Del Vecchio, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Dr. Joan Marie Del Vecchio did this work as a Newcomb postdoctoral fellow at Dartmouth University. Now she's an assistant professor at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Red Giants and White Dwarfs. It sounds a little like something from a fantasy novel, but in fact, we're talking about the life cycle of stars. 
Scientists have been studying the galaxy for clues to what happens once stars, like our sun, eventually burn up. While some larger stars will explode in spectacular supernovae, that's not the fate of our sun, and relatively smaller stars like it. It will likely end its days as a white dwarf. So, what happens to the planets that orbit these stars, like Earth? Using the James Webb Space Telescope to study nearby white dwarf stars, a team of astronomers think they may have found some clues about our solar system's future. Dr. Susan Mullally is mission scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. Hello and welcome to our program. Hi, Bob. Thank you for having me. First of all, how does an ordinary star like our sun become a white dwarf? Well, in about 5 billion years, the hydrogen in the core of the star is going to run out and extinguish. And at that point, the outer layers of the star fluff up into these big red giant type stars. And in the process, essentially uh, get to radii that are bigger than like the orbit of the Earth. And so eats up all those inner planets in our solar system. Wow. Okay. So that's turning into a red giant. And you say it's going to be bigger than the orbit of the Earth. Doesn't sound good. How does it turn into a white dwarf? So then all those outer layers eventually decouple from the core of the star and get blown away in big winds. And that leaves behind them then just this hot, dense core of essentially carbon and oxygen with a thin layer of hydrogen around it that we call a white dwarf star. And how big is the white dwarf? The white dwarf is about the size of the Earth. So it's extremely tiny, but it has the mass of about half the size of the sun. So it's a lot of material crammed into a very small space. (laughs) Now, uh, I think we've seen uh, pictures from both the Hubble and Webb telescope of uh, stars that have gone through this, where there's like a ring of gas around them. Is, Is that the kind of thing we're talking about here? That's the planetary nebula stage, yes. For a brief moment in time, it puts on this spectacular show where the when those outer layers kind of slough off after the red giant stage, and um, the, the heat then from the white dwarf light up this ring of material around it, and you get something called a planetary nebula, even though it has nothing to do with planets. <laughs> well, tell me about your study. How did you look at white dwarfs in other solar systems? Well, we use the James Webb Space Telescope uh, instrument on it called MIRI, which looks out at really long wavelength light known as the mid-infrared. So this is light you can't see with your own eyes. So it's redder than red than in red. (laughs) And uh, when we look at it out in those colors, we're actually able to take a snapshot of planets sitting right next to white dwarf stars. And so that was what this study was. We looked at four white dwarf stars searching for the evidence of a planet that's, you know, about the distance from, you know, like our outer solar system. So those kind of separations from the star, we should be able to see with this James Webb Space Telescope at these really long wavelengths. And what did you actually see? We looked at four white dwarf stars, and we found evidence of two giant planets orbiting two different white dwarf stars. What's exciting about these planets is they're about the same size as our Jupiter's. So they're like the same mass as Jupiter, a little bit bigger, um, and have about the same age as Jupiter. Okay. And are they at about the same distance from our sun as Jupiter is here? 
They're a little bit farther away. They're about the distance of Saturn, and the other is about the distance of Neptune, away from their white dwarf star. Now, what about smaller planets uh, like our Earth or Mars? Uh, so the Webb Space Telescope, using the technique that we're using, uh, isn't able to see directly image uh, pictures of like an Earth going around uh, a white dwarf star. They're just too small and don't give off enough light. Okay, so you did see planets around white dwarfs, but they're not like the Earth. They're the giant ones like Jupiter. Uh, what uh, what's that tell you then about the uh, sort of the future of our solar system? when our sun goes through that phase of first turning into a red giant and then a white dwarf. Yeah, I think that's one of the most exciting parts about this study is it allows us to like, it's like we're looking into a crystal ball about what will happen to our solar system when our star dies. Do those planets survive or are they disrupted to the point that they're either thrown off into space or destroyed in some other way? And this gives us an insight that says, well, maybe it's very likely that the outer solar system really does survive, that those planets are still there after the star dies. Okay, so that's good news for Jupiter and Saturn. Right. <laughs> but you, meant, you mentioned that when the sun goes red giant, that it will be bigger than the orbit of the Earth. So what about us? Uh, it's probably not very good news for Earth itself. <laughs> <laughs> Our best models seem to say that Earth will be right about at the edge of where like all planets are just destroyed in the heat of the star. And even if they're not, likely it'll be close enough that it'll be tidally disrupted and then pulled into the star or thrown out into space. Well, those are two different fates being pulled into the star. We're going to get incinerated, but thrown out into space. What do you mean? Well, like you we get um, thrown out to so the point we're no longer attached to our star. So we get very cold very fast. Oh, you mean thrown right out into space. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. Wow. <laughs> now, you, you mentioned that this whole process won't happen until about 5 billion years from now. But what about the process itself of the sun going through that stage of, of red giant then down to white dwarf? How long does that take? That only takes a few million years. So it's, it's a, a small snapshot in time compared to the lifetime of a star. Again, going back to our solar system, you say the Earth is, uh, is going to be really, really close. But what about Mars? It's just a little further away from the sun than we are. It seems likely that Mars will survive. Uh, and all planets that are just are outside of let's say that annihilation zone <laughs> close to the star, um, as the star loses mass, what will actually happen is that the orbits of the planet should get bigger and bigger. So the planets will drift farther away from the star. So this will happen for planets like Mars, but it'll also happen for planets like Jupiter or Saturn or Neptune. So what that actually means for our study is that since we've found evidence of candidate planets around uh, these white dwarfs at distances like at Saturn separations and Neptune separations, that when they were orbiting their alive, more massive star before it died, they were actually much closer to the star. They were actually more like at separations of Jupiter and Saturn instead of Saturn and Neptune. Dr. Mullally, thank you so much for your time. You are welcome. Thanks for having me. Dr. Susan Mullally is a mission scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. 
This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, with some animals, why not both? Within one species, there are some populations that lay eggs to reproduce for their young, and then there's other populations that have live birth. Sea otters along the Pacific coast that were once hunted nearly to extinction are making a comeback. And the reintroduction of these marine predators is largely good news for coastal ecosystems. We know they help maintain nearshore kelp forests by eating the sea urchins that eat the kelp. They also help seagrass ecosystems by protecting sea slugs from predatory crabs. The sea slugs can then go about their business of maintaining seagrass meadows by clearing algae that would otherwise deprive the seagrass of light. Wow. Well, now, new research from a salt marsh along the California coast shows how sea otters' voracious appetites are also helping reduce erosion to make these coastal ecosystems more resilient to the effects of climate change. Dr. Brent Hughes is an associate professor of biology at Sonoma State University in California. Hello, and welcome back to Quirks and Quarks. Hi, Bob. It's great to be back. First of all, what happened to sea otters in this region along the coast? Around the 18th and 19th centuries, they were overhunted across their entire range that spanned from Baja, Mexico, all the way up to Alaska, and then over to Japan because of their pelts. Their pelts are some of the softest things that you could ever touch. If you've ever been fortunate enough to touch one, the sea otter pelt has about a million hair follicles per square inch, which is a lot. And that's what keeps that animal warm. It's the only marine mammal that I know of that lacks blubber, meaning that it is kind of solely dependent on this pelt and actually eating a lot to stay alive. They eat about 25% of their biomass every day. Wow. But because of these pelts, they were hunted to near extinction. In California, over 100 years ago, it was thought that the sea otters were actually extinct. A remnant population was rediscovered off the coast of Big Sur, which is south of Monterey. And that was rediscovered around the 1920s. And since then, the, the population has been recovering and expanding, but very, very slowly. Hmm. Now, tell me about the salt marsh in your study. What's it like? Elkhorn Slough, where we did our work, sits at the foot of a very productive watershed in terms of its agriculture. That's the Salinas Valley. It grows a lot of uh, our country's leafy greens and Brussels sprouts and strawberries. But for about the last 80 years or so, there's been sea level rise. And marshes, in particular salt marshes, they need to be very healthy and productive to produce the sediments. They're kind of self-sustaining meaning that if they grow a lot, then those leaves and shoots are eventually going to die off and feed the soils that are building up. And so if the soils aren't building up in the salt marsh, it could drown because of sea level rise. Mm -hmm. 
So what was the salt marsh like without the sea otters? So without the sea otters, the top predator essentially in the system being gone for 100 years, the salt marsh has these native shore crabs. And without the predator in the ecosystem, these shore crabs were very, very abundant. And these shore crabs, what they do is they burrow into the marsh itself and they destabilize it in that way. And then on top of it, they also eat the roots and the rhizomes that also stabilize the salt marsh and the shoreline. And so without the sea otters around to keep those crabs in check, the marsh and the banks themselves kind of looked like Swiss cheese. Wow. And they were very unstable and it was causing a lot of this erosion in the estuary. So what happened to the marsh when the otters came back? When the otters came back, what ended up happening is much to our surprise, we're feeding heavily on these crabs, these shore crabs, and basically reduce their population almost to nothing. And with that, the burrows started filling in. There was obviously less herbivory on the roots. And the shoreline became almost stabilized, almost solidified after the sea otters had recovered and removed all those crabs, slowing down erosion in the system. Wow. So the sea otters ate the crabs, the crabs stopped eating the roots of the plant, and then the plants came back because they could uh, hold on to the soil better. Yeah, that's right. Wow. How did you actually test the effect of the sea otters and the crabs and the, and the marsh? Oh, Bob, we did it in many different ways. <laughs> um, the, since the estuary had been basically been monitored since the 1930s, we had a good understanding of what the erosion was in the system. The scientists that came before me started monitoring the sea otters as soon as they arrived in the estuary in the mid-80s. So we had a really good understanding of what was going on. And then when the, we saw the first evidence of sea otters using salt marshes, we started monitoring the system very specifically, looking at the crabs, looking at the marsh itself and its biomass and the soil mass. And then we did experiments where we excluded the sea otter using cages out of the marsh for a period of about three years. And then we compared those areas to areas where the, the sea otters could fully access the marsh. And we looked at things like crab burrowing and crab densities and the, and the biomass and the health of the marsh and, and soil mass. And what we found was that, yeah, if you exclude the sea otters, the burrows go up, the crab densities go up, the, the marsh biomass goes down and so does the soil mass. So what? when you put those four things together, they all pointed to sea otters. So what does this relationship that you saw between sea otters, crabs, and salt marshes tell you about the role of predators in maintaining the health of ecosystems? Yeah. So I think, you know, the sea otter is just a prime example of a top predator promoting the health of an ecosystem and adding in resilience to ecosystems that are under threat and under stress. How important are healthy salt marshes when it comes to resilience to climate change? Oh, that's a great question. I love this question. And, you know, if you look at a salt marsh, you might think of it as not very impressive. Typically, all you see is one species of plant in a big broad landscape, but they're, they're actually doing remarkable things. One thing they do is they protect shorelines. So as storms, in, which are becoming more prevalent with climate change, they could actually slow down storm surges 
Um, so imagine if you had a parking lot and a, and a storm surge came through, it had no problem just ripping through there. Now say that storm surge had to go through, you know, an acre of plants and mud, it's going to get slowed down. So that's one big thing it does. It also locks in carbon at a remarkable rate. So it buries carbon, which is really important for climate change. It filters out human contaminants before they reach the ocean. It's, it's a natural filtration. And then for some marshes, they're actually nurseries for other species of crabs and fish in particular. And then they just attract biodiversity, especially when we talk about birds. Mm-hmm. They're big bird attractors, so they, they actually enhance the biodiversity of an ecosystem. So they do all these remarkable things without us really being able to kind of visibly see it at all times. Mm-hmm. And it just underlines the complexity of nature. Everything's connected to everything else. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Dr. Hughes, thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you so much, Bob. Dr. Brent Hughes is an associate professor of biology at Sonoma State University in California. It's a riddle so old it has gray hair and wrinkles. What came first, the chicken or the egg? But behind the tired puzzle is a real scientific question with important evolutionary implications. When did live birth and egg laying evolve? After all, there's nothing in life more important than reproduction and making sure your offspring have the best possible start in life. So understanding what drove the evolution of hard-shell eggs and live birth in terrestrial animals is critical to understanding the diversity of life. Now, a recent large comparative study of both extinct and living terrestrial animals, egg layers, and those that give live birth to their young, has untangled this question. Dr. Michael Benton led a team of researchers from China and the UK on this study, He's a professor of paleontology at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hello, Dr. Benton. Welcome to our program. Hello. Thank you. So before your study, how did we used to think egg-laying arose? I think the general textbook view was that the first reptiles back in the Carboniferous about 320 million years ago laid an egg that was something like a, a chicken's egg with a hard shell where the embryo, the baby, develops to a certain point where it can burst out of the egg and run about. And the reason that we thought that this was the first type of egg is that you see it also in most living reptiles, if you think of turtles and crocodiles and lizards. And so it was assumed, tracking back, that that's the way it all started. Now, what would be the reason for that evolution to start laying eggs? Yes, so this is one of the big innovations in the history of life. People are very interested in these big steps when vertebrates, for example, moved on to land. And then the next step was full conquering of the land, so to speak. And the reason this is important was that up to that point, land-living vertebrates, the tetrapods, uh, still probably laid their eggs in water, just like modern frogs and salamanders which is not a bad thing to do, of course, they're very successful, but uh, it would not have enabled reptiles, birds and mammals essentially to break away from that connection with the water. Ah, I see. So it's protection uh, out of the water, on the land. So 
how did you investigate the origins of egg laying in your study? So what started this was um, colleagues in China, they'd found a fantastic specimen of a small aquatic reptile um, called a Choristodir from the Cretaceous about 120 million years ago. And this thing had evidently laid a so-called parchment-shelled egg. So this is an egg that doesn't have a mineralized hard layer. And then that raised the question, hmm, actually, what was the very first condition of the very first reptile? So that's where we went from the small-scale observation to the big scale. And we looked at all cases we could find and drew up a big evolutionary tree of all the reptiles as well as their descendants, the birds and the mammals. And we were able to map on, of course, the mode of reproduction of any number of the living forms because we know that. And we added, I think, 70 or 80 fossil forms where we knew for sure because of exceptional fossils, whether these dinosaurs or other marine reptiles, various other groups, whether they were producing live young or a hard-shelled egg, because they preserve very well as fossils, or indeed a leathery-shelled egg, which don't preserve so often, but they do occasionally. So when you looked at all of that, at what point in the evolutionary history of birds and chickens did eggs first appear? Well, the very first egg-laying reptile probably was about 320 million years ago, In fact, these are known from fossils such as Hylonomus and Paleothyrus from the Joggins in Nova Scotia. Uh, We haven't actually found eggs with them, but people had assumed the nature of the eggs. We know for sure they are reptiles. But whether they were laying leathery-shelled eggs or giving birth to live young, we don't know for sure. But actually, the hard-shelled egg appeared much later, probably in the Jurassic, uh, maybe 180 million years ago. Were birds and chicken ancestors around at that time? Yes, they were. And so this brings us to the first answer to the the knotty question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And if we mean by egg something that looks like a chicken's egg, then we would say the egg, because many dinosaurs, which are the ancestors of birds, of course, were laying hard-shelled eggs. Okay, so the the egg came before the chicken. Uh, But if we think of the chicken as a stand-in for uh, a chicken ancestor, which came first, the animal or the egg that (laughs) it may have hatched from? Yeah, that's a very different question because, strictly speaking, domesticated chickens, of which we're familiar with, um, they're nothing like as ancient. They're maybe as much as 10,000 years, only 10,000 years. So occurring with some of the earliest uh, uh, humans that were engaging in agriculture, But of course, the egg and the chicken came at the same time. And so those very first chickens that were being domesticated by humans, we don't know for sure whether they took them into their homes and and bred them either to eat the meat, probably, or perhaps to eat the eggs. But they were already egg laying. Okay, so that's the domesticated chicken. But what about the chicken ancestor? What do we know about it? Yeah, well, so chickens have a long history. Technically speaking, they're members of the order Galliformes. That's the order of birds that also includes a lot of game birds, such as pheasant and grouse. And so that group actually does date back to the age of the dinosaurs. They just popped in. They squeaked in at the end of the Cretaceous, maybe by a few million years. So you could imagine something ancestral to the chicken actually saw T. rex 
Wow. But at that point, they were still laying eggs. And uh, you go a long way back in the evolution of reptiles before you come to forms that were not laying eggs of that kind. <laughs> Why do you think it's important to continue to try to answer this old, old chicken egg riddle? I think it's important not so much for the riddle, really. It's a nice way of focusing people. I think what really interests people are new things. And in the evolution of our own group, the vertebrates, we think of the fin to limb transition when tetrapods moved on to land. We maybe think of the origin of flight and the great success of birds. We maybe think of the cold-blooded to warm-blooded transition. So these are big complex innovations that require a great deal of careful work. And they're quite interdisciplinary because they involve contributions not only from paleontologists studying the fossils, but also linking right through to the new sciences of genomics and mapping out the development of these features in the very young embryos and the nature of mutation and evolution and change and improvement in the nature of these adaptations. So these are questions that would have fascinated Charles Darwin. And now we have much more material, fossil specimens, but also wonderful new techniques that help us get to grips with these kinds of questions about innovations. Dr. Benton, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, Bob. That was Dr. Michael Benton, a professor of paleontology at the University of Bristol. So that's the big picture take on which came first, the chicken or the egg. But like Dr. Benton said, paleontologists aren't the only ones investigating the origins of egg laying. You got it? Yeah. Scientists who were studying an extremely unusual population of common lizards living in a mountain in the Austrian Alps discovered some illuminating insights into this problem. Canadian researcher Dr. Catherine Elmer led this study. She's a professor of integrative evolutionary biology at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. Hello and welcome to our program. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. First of all, tell me about the lizards you studied. What are they like? As you said in your introduction, they're called the common lizard, but I like to think of them as the not-so-common lizard <laughs> because they have this amazing strategy that within one species, there are some populations that lay eggs to reproduce for their young, and then there's other populations that have live birth. Well, tell me about the ones that live in this location in the Austrian Alps. Why were they interesting to you? So they were a really amazing find for evolutionary biologists and also for the whole field of herpetology. And most populations that we find all the way across Eurasia, so everywhere from, from the British Isles right over to Japan, and this species goes the furthest north of any lizard. It goes up to Finland, even to the Arctic Circle. And usually they're live-bearing, but there are a couple of remnant sites or populations that are in the southern part of the range where they lay eggs. And that's the ancestral state for this species. And what is happening at this site in Austria is that the egg layers, their distribution goes up a valley and the live bearers are at the higher altitudes. So they're really high in the mountains, but when they come down the mountains for the edges of their distribution, they're just, just starting to come into contact. Wow. And where they come into contact, it turns out they're interbreeding. And through this interbreeding, we, we identified hybrids. Holy cow. So you, you've got yeah. almost like evolution in action here happening in one place. You've got egg layers in one spot, and then you just look up a mountainside and you, you see live birthers? 
Yeah, they can even be in exactly the same location, but this area of overlap is really narrow. So it's about the distance of, of a few hundred meters of an alpine meadow where there's cattle grazing. It's extremely narrow. You cross over one little stream that you can just leap across it. And when you get to the other side, it's live bearers. So what are the hybrids doing? Are they laying eggs or giving live birth? Well, that's that's what's the amazing thing. They do something that we don't see in any other species, so that they have an intermediate trait. So what we see as hybrids are females who are themselves hybrids, and then they are having hybrid clutches. And so egg layers lay calcified eggs that are white and they're hard, made with calcium, and they're incubated externally. Well, live bearers the little baby lizard is inside a thin membrane sac that doesn't have any calcification. And when they're born from the mother, they emerge from that sac quite quickly, within moments or, or hours usually. But the hybrids are laying some thin-shelled eggs that are sort of mottled, and it spans a continuum from looking almost completely like the egg membrane of the live bearers all the way through to the calcification of the egg layers. Boy. Well, just generally, what's the evolutionary advantage of egg laying versus giving live birth? Certainly, live birth has associations with very unpredictable climates and extreme climates, colder climates. This has the benefits that the females can control the incubation of their offspring. They can thermoregulate by finding a a nice warm rock on a sunny day when it's cold out. uh, And they can also protect their clutch from from predators by by fleeing with, with the clutch within them. Whereas egg layers can produce multiple times a year. So in many locations where this common or, or uncommon lizard is found, the egg layers actually lay twice a year. So this is, is, is an advantage for them as far as their reproductive success. Oh, I see. Instead of having to uh, keep the young warm and, and live inside their bodies, uh, they can just lay the eggs if it's warm enough outside and just walk away. Exactly. That's what they do. Yes. <laughs> Well, once you came across this population that had both egg layers and live birthers in the same location, how did you work through their genetics to figure out which regions in their DNA would determine these traits? We made reference genomes. We did some studies to try to understand the composition of the genome of this species. But then ultimately, we used these lizards that we found in the wild And we analyzed them to identify which parts of the genome are representative of the egg layers and which parts of the genome are representative of the live bearers. And then with that information, we can look at the hybrids and say, well, which which parts of the genome or which genetic variants are associated with traits that are like egg layer traits or in which ones are like live bearer traits. And what did you find? We found that there was hundreds of genes that were associated with either the egg layer traits or the live bearer traits, and which we could distinguish in the hybrids. So what were these genes doing? Well, that was quite exciting to find out because some of these genes, in fact, many of these genes that we found were genes that were already known from mammals to be very important in pregnancy. So there's several sets of genes that are known to be involved in 
the communication between the mother and the fetus. We found genes that are known to be associated with successfully embedding the embryo and also for the timing of delivery. And one of the big differences between egg laying and live bearing is that in egg laying, the respiration that comes from the embryo goes out into the air through the shell. Whereas in live bearers, this has to be removed by the mother's circulatory system. And we can see signs of that. So some of the genes that we found that were involved in these different traits are genes that are associated with the development of vascularization and connective tissues. And we even found genes that are known to be associated with egg production and fecundity in birds that were found to be associated with the egg layers. Wow. I understand that there were also differences in the immune system genes. Can you tell me about that? Yes. So we found differences in the immune system genes between the egg layers and the live bearers. We found genes that are involved in reducing the activity of the immune system so that the mother doesn't reject the embryo as a foreign body. Okay. So bringing it back to our chicken or egg riddle... Which came first, the lizard egg or the squirming lizard baby? <laughs> Absolutely the lizard egg. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> now, how big of a genetic leap is it to go from egg laying to live birth? It is a, one of these major steps in evolution because something that's quite striking about egg laying and live bearing is it's arisen many times independently in different lineages, and yet we only see one state or the other. So these hybrids that we see are quite exceptional. And so there are a suite of different traits that need to work together. There's making the egg, there's the timing of its delivery, there's the way that it's provisioned. Even just applying the calcification to the egg is a really advanced physiological activity for the female. And then on the other side, we have live birth, where there's a different timing of delivery, there is a different provisioning, and these intermediate stages are very non-functional. So thin-shelled eggs within the mother are resulting in poorer respiration, poorer development. So it's something that has to, from an evolutionary perspective, all the different genes need to be able to start to work together and then make this big leap. And that's why, from a genetic perspective, it's such a fascinating thing to study. We can identify what the genes are that make these different traits. We can look at how these genes then work together. And then also if they are the same in different species. Dr. Elma, thank you so much for your time. It's really been my pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Catherine Elmer is a professor of integrative evolutionary biology at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckowitz, and Sonia Biting. Our senior producer is Jim Lemons. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.